Good morning, Alex and friends. I'm Grace. Today is Friday, December 15, 2023, and you're listening to Alex's News. Turning to today's weather forecast before we dive into the headlines, Riverside is experiencing a comfortable high of 74.3 degrees with a mild low of 61.1, a perfect backdrop as we bring you the news of the day. In our lead story, health experts are raising alarms across the nation, warning that the United States is unprepared for the growing threat posed by mosquito and tick-borne viruses. This concerning trend could have serious implications for public health. In local news, Shangri-La Industries, a prominent developer, is currently under scrutiny as they face a probe for alleged program violations in their Honki-funded affordable housing projects. The legal developments and ramifications are unfolding, and we'll share the latest information with you. On a broader scale, we'll explore the landscape of the arts and entertainment sector, which received an unprecedented level of relief funding from the U.S. government during the pandemic. Despite the much-needed support, challenges still loom on the horizon for this vital industry. Stay tuned as we unpack these stories and more, keeping you informed on what matters most. We're diving into a top story this morning that's buzzing with concern. It appears the U.S. is finding itself in a potentially dangerous situation as mosquito and tick-borne viruses are posing an increasing threat to public health. For a closer look at what's going on and how the country might brace for this emerging challenge, we turn to our reporter Ethan. Ethan, can you give us a lay of the land concerning this alarming situation? Certainly, Grace. The crux of the matter is that the U.S. is confronting a worrisome rise in illnesses transmitted by mosquitoes and ticks. Globalization and climate change are formidable players in this scenario, facilitating the spread of these insects and the diseases they carry to new terrains, including territories within the U.S. In recent times, local transmissions of tropical diseases like malaria and parasitic skin infections have been recorded, while we've witnessed outbreaks of Zika and Dengue as well. Ethan, when you talk about these diseases making a mark more locally, what are some of the factors contributing to this surge, specifically within the United States? Well, a significant contributing factor here is the dwindling resources dedicated to tracking and controlling these pests. There's a stark deficit in infrastructure and funding, aimed essentially at entomologists, the scientists who specialize in insect behavior and control. As of now, there are merely 16 state entomologists tasked with monitoring a multitude of viruses like West Nile. That's a far cry from what's needed to maintain, let alone strengthen, our defenses against these creeping dangers. That shortage sounds critical. What are some repercussions we could face if we continue at this status quo? What might be the broader consequences? If the current trends persist, we're potentially looking at more frequent and severe outbreaks, straining our healthcare systems that are already dealing with a lot. With each outbreak, there's the human toll, economic burden, and an implicit signal that we are reactive, not proactive, in fighting these diseases. It's worth noting that diseases carried by these insects can cause long term health complications putting an additional strain on individuals and communities. You mentioned Singapore's efforts as a shining example. How does their approach differ, and what can we learn from them? Singapore's strategy is multifaceted. They keep their city environment clean, educate the populace on best practices, and run a rigorous surveillance program. They even impose fines or jail time for allowing mosquito breeding sites. Some of these might be challenging to implement in the U.S. due to the delicate balance with personal freedoms, a topic that has grown even more sensitive since the COVID-19 pandemic. Are there any innovative strategies out there to help curb these viruses? 
Research and development are key here, Grace. Scientists are exploring vaccines and even urban designs to thwart mosquitoes. Imagine mosquito-proof cities, it's a fascinating concept. The problem is that funding cuts and our reactive nature to outbreaks have steve-fitted long-term planning and control. However, there's a glimmer of hope with suggestions like the establishment of regional centers focusing on vector-borne disease research and expanding the functions of agencies like BARDA to include these diseases. It seems like a comprehensive approach is essential going forward. Ethan, thank you for shedding light on what is undoubtedly a complex and evolving story. Stay with us, viewers. Coming up, we've got more news after the break. This has been Ethan, bringing us the details on the growing concern over mosquito and tick-borne diseases. Thank you, Ethan. My pleasure, Grace. Let's hope for the best with proactive measures in place. Turning our attention to a developing story out of California, the state's Department of Housing and Community Development is currently investigating a situation with Shangri-La Industries. This comes after the developer defaulted on loans for several motel conversion projects under the HomeKey program. With us to unpack this story is our reporter, Chloe. Chloe, can you give us an overview of what's happening? Certainly, Grace. Shangri-La Industries has been entrusted with the conversion of motels into permanent housing for the homeless, a key initiative of California's HomeKey program. They secured grants for seven projects, but now they're under scrutiny for program violations, failing to formalize affordability restrictions which are pivotal to these projects. This failure has serious repercussions, including jeopardizing the future of the developments with contractors claiming they haven't been paid. That sounds quite serious. Can you delve into the key elements of this issue for us? Of course. One major part of the HomeKey program is the implementation of affordability agreements that dictate the terms for maintaining lower rent levels to serve homeless individuals. Shangri-La apparently didn't record these vital covenants in six out of seven projects, which poses a risk to the project's intentions of aiding those in need. Quite the oversight. What is Shangri-La's position in this matter? Well, Andy Myers, the CEO of Shangri-La, is pointing fingers at the state housing department. He's claiming that delays in approving these important affordability agreements are at the heart of the issue, pushing the projects beyond their original budgets. Interesting, so it's a blame game at this point. What could be the potential implications of this investigation? If the violations are substantial, we could see significant delays or even the cancellation of projects meant to aid countless homeless residents. Moreover, this isn't just a setback for the homeless community, it's a rude awakening about the possible cracks in the execution of HomeKey's programs as they collide with realities of project management. And considering the size of the program, this must have widespread implications. Absolutely, Grace. The HomeKey program is a $3.1 billion initiative covering 226 projects. It's a critical part of California's strategy to combat homelessness. So, any issues at this level could potentially shake the foundations of the state's housing efforts. Given all this, how does the approval process for these agreements typically work, and where might things have gone astray for Shangri-La? It's a multi-step process starting with the notice of funding availability, where HomeKey announces grant funding. Applicants must submit applications, these get reviewed, and then the awarded projects are announced. After that, standard agreements define the grant's terms, and only upon full execution do funds get disbursed. It's throughout these stages where miscommunication and delays can emerge, affected by a myriad of factors such as lengthy reviews, complex local permits, and the challenges of adhering to program restrictions. Quite the intricate scenario. 
How is the HomeKey program addressing these kinds of challenges to prevent similar occurrences? The program encourages partnerships between public entities, affordable housing developers, and service providers to facilitate these projects. HomeKey also offers over-the-counter grants, which means applicants can submit at any time, removing the competitive application period. This is designed to expedite the process overall. That's a smart approach. Thanks for breaking down this complex issue, Chloe. It will be interesting to see how this investigation unfolds and what impact it will have on California's efforts to provide housing for the homeless. Indeed, Grace. I'll be sure to keep an eye on the developments. Thank you for the in-depth analysis, Chloe. Moving on to story three. Good morning. Here are some other headlines from today's news. First up, with the 2024 presidential election drawing near, Americans from all political backgrounds are expressing deep concerns about its impact on the foundation of our democracy. As tensions rise, voters worry, for various reasons, that the upcoming election is a critical juncture for democratic values and institutions. In international news, despite facing budgetary pressures, the U.S. government continues to find ways to supply military support to Ukraine. This steadfast financial aid underscores the strategic significance that the United States places on the evolving conflict in Ukraine. Over in Beijing, we're following reports of a rail collision which drew attention to potential issues within one of the world's busiest transit systems and raising questions about the security of public transportation in the Chinese capital. Back home, demographic studies are revealing a stark gender imbalance across the country. On the East Coast, women are reported to outnumber men in many major counties, while men predominate in western regions, influencing the socioeconomic fabric in these areas. Lastly, in local politics, the Boston mayor's choice to host a holiday party exclusively for elected officials of color has sparked intense discussions about race, representation, and inclusivity within political spheres. These stories reflect a broad spectrum of events that continue to shape the nation at various levels, from broad geopolitical actions and concerns about election integrity, to the intimate demographics and decisions that affect our local communities. And for a bit of positive news, Prince Harry has scored a monumental victory in his phone hacking case against a major British tabloid. This milestone is uplifting because it stands as a win for personal privacy against intrusive media practices, signaling that individuals can successfully confront powerful entities to defend their rights and achieve justice. This story shines a light on the power of legal systems to safeguard individual liberties and demand accountability from influential groups in the media world. Turning to our third story of the morning, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. government provided a significant amount of relief funding to various sectors, and the arts and entertainment industry was a notable recipient. To dive into what this really meant for the industry and what comes next, we have our specialist correspondent, Ethan, with us today. Ethan, can you start by giving us an overview of the relief efforts for the arts? Absolutely, Grace. The numbers here are quite striking. The U.S. government allocated $53 billion of the $4.6 trillion federal relief funds specifically to support arts and entertainment. This funding came from various programs, including the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan, among others. The money flowed into nearly every county in the country, creating a much-needed safety net during the most severe moments of the pandemic. $53 billion is a considerable amount, Ethan. 
Can you explain what difference this made to arts organizations during the shutdown? Sure, Grace. This funding essentially became a lifeline for many arts organizations. With venues shut and no way to operate normally, layoffs were rampant. The relief allowed these groups to bring employees back, sometimes even covering back pay. In a sector where the financial margins are typically tight, this was a game changer at the time. But now, with the relief funds ending, what sort of challenges are these organizations facing? This is where things get tough, Grace. Although the relief was generous, arts organizations are seeing a slower recovery than anticipated. Attendance hasn't bounced back to pre-pandemic levels, particularly in the performing arts. This is squeezing budgets again and raising concerns about sustainability without continued financial support. You mentioned earlier the sheer magnitude of the relief compared to traditional arts funding. Can you elaborate on that, Ethan? Of course. The study by SMU Data Arts highlighted a staggering fact. The $53 billion in relief funding was more than 24 years' worth of combined government arts funding from the National Endowment for the Arts and Institute for Museum and Library Services. It shows just how unprecedented this intervention was. With such a significant investment, can we speculate on what this might mean for the future of government support for arts and culture? That's the big question right now, Grace. There's hope among arts organizations that the relief will serve as a precedent for ongoing support. These organizations play a pivotal role in our communities and contribute significantly to the economy. So, the study, by pointing out these figures, is essentially igniting a conversation on the future of public arts funding. Definitely something to watch. Any other peculiarities or related factors we should consider here? One thing the pandemic highlighted was the resilience and adaptability of arts organizations. They've had to find new ways to engage their audiences and rethink their operations. That innovation is something to keep an eye on, especially as SMU Data Arts continues its research on the communities that benefited from these funds. Well, Ethan, it's clear that the relief funding was a critical measure during a time of crisis for the arts. The big takeaway seems to be that while the sector has been thrown a lifeline, its survival going forward may call for a re-evaluation of how we value and support the arts in the long run. Thank you for that enlightening discussion. My pleasure, Grace. It's certainly a pivotal moment for the arts and entertainment industry, and I look forward to seeing how this unfolds in the future. That's all we have for now. Today's episode was made by Alexander King with GPT-4, GPT-3.5 Turbo, the Perplexity API, and the Google Cloud Text-to-Speech API. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow, Alex.